This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 252 of the Literary Treks podcast, your Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the wonderful, world-renowned Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? I am doing great. Just fantastic. Because I'm world-renowned, and it just means a lot to me. You are world-renowned, and do you know why you're world-renowned? I do, but tell me, please. Well, I recently got my copy of the Season 1 Blu-ray of Star Trek Discovery, and I loaded up one of the special features, and it has footage from the world premiere of the first episode of Star Trek Discovery, and I thought I caught a glimpse of Aaron Harvey, so I paused backed it up a bit and played it forward again and paused. And who should I see but Bruce Gibson? Bruce, (laughs) you're famous. I am so glad I was at that world premiere for Discovery. It was one of the (laughs) best nights of my life. That was just incredible, incredible time. So, yeah, that was great. So, yeah, I don't have that Blu-ray yet. Because I put that down as a Christmas gift idea. Oh. So I won't get be able to watch the uh, those extra stuff until after December 25th. <laughs> Hopefully. And if anybody's listening and they're like, why after December 25th? Why not on December, December 25th? It's because we open up gifts, then we go to my in-laws, then we go to my parents. Like, I can't enjoy any of my Christmas stuff until the next day because I'm running all over the place. So that's why it will have to be after. <laughs> Well, I certainly hope after all that, that you actually do get that as a gift now. (laughs) I think I will. I think it's already bought. (laughs) Okay. Just based on comments my wife had. Now, what is this again that you want and where can I get? And, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, it's coming. It's coming. Awesome. That's cool. Well, in the feature today, we are talking about the final book of the A Time 2 series. We made it, guys. We're there. Uh, We're talking about A Time for War, A Time for Peace by Keith R.A. DeCandido. And as a special bonus, we actually have the author here with us to talk about it. So look forward to that in the feature. 
Yes, but we told him he can't talk right now, so he's just sitting here quietly until we get to the feature. Oh yeah, no, he's being he's being very quiet in the corner. Uh, we gave him some of those those Snickers out of the green room and M and M's, and yeah, he's he's doing okay. And he brought his <laughs> cat with him, so it's keeping him occupied. <laughs> Perfect. Well, before we get to the feature, though, we do have a new comic that we want to talk about. A recent release was the fifth issue of the Star Trek The Next Generation Terra Incognita series. So let's uh, let's take a quick look at that issue. This is the continuing saga of The Next Generation. They've mostly been kind of standalone stories, but with this, you know, running thread through it of Barclay, who has crossed over from the mirror universe in the last series and has stayed behind as and and taken over our reg barkley's life on the enterprise but this one has to do with kind of this weird medical mystery on this planet with these aliens that have a plague where they kind of go berserk and feral almost and attack people seemingly without cause and we join the story with Worf and Barkley trying to aid these people in a hospital, but being attacked by them instead. Uh, so first impressions of this story, Bruce, what did you think about this story getting into it here? Honestly, I think my first impression was, okay, we have Barkley in these scenes in this hospital and I know he's the mere Barkley, but I started to realize how much I enjoy this character and wish he were part of the prime universe permanently, like replacing the original Barkley because he just seems to be more confident and he's very intelligent and he really helps to contribute to uh, these away team miss uh, missions. So um, that was my first impression. And then these aliens, uh, they're red and very violent. And I wondered if, that's how they typically act or if it was just this virus. And we see later on that they actually do look different. Once they get infected, they turn red and become this way. Yeah, this was an interesting story. I not usually a big fan of medical mysteries uh, as we've discussed in other episodes, but this one, I think the story takes an interesting um, track and the end cause of, what's going on, which we'll get to a little later was kind of unexpected and a little odd, but you know, generally I'm, I'm interested in this story. I'm kind of getting into it. And of course there's just always that threat lingering in the background of Barkley, you know, what's, what's going on. But something I noticed as this episode goes, or is this, sorry, I want to say episode because this feels so much like an episode of TNG, but as this issue goes on, Barkley is really contributing and has some really good ideas and ultimately by the end actually comes up with the the idea that solves the mystery and and, and cures things so you know he's really subverting my expectations as to what he's doing and, and what his role is going to be and it really feels like he's kind of found a place for himself in our universe i don't know what what did you think about that that's exactly how I'm feeling. It's like, that's why I kind of want this character to remain uh, because he does feel like he fits into this universe and should remain here. But the way this story plays out, not about Barkley, but about the, um, the aliens on this planet, 
we come to find out that they they originally came from the sea and now they're on land and they want to through evolution they want to de-evolutionize themselves to go back into the water which we found out find out later is probably what the cause of this virus this plague is so there's this theme where even data explains that that beings seem to idolize going back to their past being nostalgic about something and he talks about the 20th century and how people idolize the culture of the old west and kind of wanted to go back to that so I started thinking about that theme and I thought, is that where we're going with Barkley? That Barkley is fitting into the prime universe, but is he being going to be nostalgic and want to go back to where he came from and he's kind of idolizing the mere universe? Will we see that play out? And we don't see that in this issue. So in some ways, I wonder if we'll see that in the next issue or maybe this is mute and doesn't apply to Barkley at all. But that was something that was going on in my mind. Hmm, That's an interesting thought for sure. Because yeah, like you say, as this story goes on, we learn, like you said, that that's the root cause of this sickness. And it turns out to not really be a plague. It's kind of, and and this seems weird, but this is what I got out of it, is that they're overhydrated, basically, because they're, they're being in water all the time, and that's causing them to kind of go berserk. And they come up with this idea of uh, kind of silica powder that will dry them up quickly and it really snaps them out of it immediately. And Barkley plays a really big role in coming up with this solution. Uh, and like I said, that really surprised me that he really seems to be kind of fitting in. And my prediction, and I have a prediction for the next issue, which is the final issue. Uh, Barkley, I think by witnessing the altruism of the Federation and the good things that they're doing and how that society works. I think he's going to really come to appreciate that and want to remain uh, in this universe, not because he can attain power and that sort of thing, but because he actually has come to see it as a good thing. I could be totally wrong, but like that would be a really nice Star Trek-y type message, I think. It does feel feel like it's moving in that direction it does but Mm. as again as i was saying what the message of this with these aliens makes me wonder if it's going to play out differently yeah but i do agree with you that it feels that he's really coming around to liking the prime universe and is probably going to want to stay now that's uh either way like i i'm not sure which way it's going to go but Either way, the last couple pages of this of this uh, issue really kind of throw a wrench in the works here. I don't know. Do we want to spoil what happens at the end here? Or? Oh, <laughs> you know what? I I would say maybe not. Okay. Yeah. Usually we're we're you know we go through the comics pretty thoroughly, but the ending of this one I think was was a really you know left turn, and uh, I was not expecting this at all. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that and say it's setting up some really interesting stuff for issue number six. And I'm really curious to see where it goes. So, uh, man, I am really digging this series and I'm just like all the other series we've gotten with this continuing storyline. I'm really sad to see it ending in the next issue. And I really hope there's some kind of plan, uh, to go forward. I know they're doing a Picard stargazer, uh, issue, 
later on. I, I can't remember if that's an ongoing series or just a one issue thing. I don't know if they want to have other next generation stuff going on, but I'd love to see something with this continuity keep going. Yeah. This is an interesting series because as you mentioned earlier, a, the different issues play as if they're standalone stories and they really mm-hmm. are standalone stories, but then there's one little connecting thread throughout them and they're and it's Barkley. And I really enjoy that because I feel like, as you mentioned, when you called this an episode and you said, oh, well, I'm sorry, it's an issue. It just feels like an episode. That's what these feel like because they're standalone and they feel like episodes. But the, the difference is there's something that ties them together. There's this underplaying secondary storyline behind them. And so that makes it to me a little more interesting because I feel like we're getting what feels like TNG, but then there's something more to it because we know there's something with Barkley and we don't know what it is. So there's a bit of a mystery going on at the same time. So it really works well. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's been really compelling, like in ways that I wasn't expecting. I think mostly because of that standalone property of it uh, that, like I said, I wasn't expecting at all. So this is really cool. And uh, I don't know what they have planned next. I'm really hoping something like this again. Yeah, that would be great. Well, uh, before we get to the feature, we do want to do some listener feedback from the Babel conference uh, for a couple episodes ago, Literary Treks 250, Tom Clancy without Technobabble. And that was all about Star Trek The Next Generation, A Time to Heal by David Mack. And that was the episode that we actually had David Mack uh, as a guest uh, interviewed about that novel. So we want to read some of your guys' comments from the Babel conference. So first of all, we have a comment by Justin Ozer, frequent commenter and frequent guest of, of the, uh, of the podcast. He says, fantastic interview. So many great insights here that helped me to get a deeper understanding of the novels, especially regarding Troy's behavior in a time to heal. I love David Mack's suggestion that after the events of A Time to Heal that you'd see doubles of Zeif and Azernal from time to time to keep up appearances. You also answered a question I'd wondered about before regarding David Mack's deep knowledge of military procedures and terms. It makes a lot of sense now. Uh, thanks, Justin. Yeah, that was a great interview and a lot of really great insights, I think, into David Mack's process and, and how he comes up with some of this stuff. Uh, and, and that military, that discussion of the military and how he comes by that knowledge, I thought was really cool too. Yeah, that was, that was really insightful and, and some great stories in there. And Justin also posted again, uh, saying that just got to the part where David Mack said he's working on a new TNG novel with the working title collateral damage that follows up on some of the events in a time to kill and a time to heal. So excited about that. And yeah, we're excited too, because this plays right in these books that we're reading plays right into a new book that's coming out. And, you know, it was breaking news here on Literary Treks about the title of this new TNG novel by David Mack. So that was pretty exciting for us. Yeah, that's something we never really get to do is have breaking news because of the uh, the gap between when we record and when the episode goes out. But that full week and a half in between recording and coming out, no one else broke that news. So that was pretty cool. I was, I was excited about that. Chris Tribuzio writes, I have a question. I would like to put kill and heal on my list, but must I read the others which come before to understand the story? 
Now that's a good question. Um, personally, I think it would be helpful because a lot of these elements carry through, uh, through to the end of this series. I, do you absolutely have to read all of the novels? I don't think so, but I feel like reading all of them gives you a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for the story as a whole. You could certainly read them on their own, uh, and there will be references to previous, um, events and that sort of thing. But I think for the whole backstory of, you know, how the enterprise has been disgraced and Picard's kind of fall from grace, you might want to read those, uh, back novels, the entire series. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, that's the thing about the Star Trek novels, just in general, if you haven't kept up with the different series or, you know, there's all these novels that are all connected and where do I start and should I go to this and should I read that first or whatever? I mean, sure, I would say chronologically start from the very beginning of something and go through it if that's what you want to do, if you're going to have the time. But at the same time, you can just pick and choose wherever. If there's a novel that really sounds interesting to you, don't feel like you have to go and read back uh, novels that take place prior to it. The authors are very good at catching you up on what's been happening. And if anything that I've learned, I haven't necessarily kept up with all the novels like I wanted to. And like when we're doing the A Time To series, there are things in these novels that appear in later novels that ha that I've already read. And if anything, now what's happening for me is as I'm reading A Time To, I'm like, oh my gosh, this plays out later in this novel and because I read a novel later and whatever. And I mean, you'll hear in an interview that we're, you know, as we're going to talk to Keith DeCandido, you know, we're going to be talking about this novel a time for war a time for peace and a lot of this plays out then in articles of the federation which i had read before so there's things i was reading in here i was like oh my gosh i re i know where this is going so i really feel like you can read anything out of order and you don't have to read it all to enjoy it yeah that's a very good point about especially about the authors being good about kind of catching you up uh if you have skipped a book it's you know, it's important to remember, and some of the authors have said this when they come on the show, that any Star Trek novel could be someone's first Star Trek novel. So they feel that they owe it to readers to kind of not make them feel lost. And there's really no novel out there that will make you feel lost. You can absolutely, like Bruce said, um, read any of these novels and get a complete story. So that's a really good point. I like that. What Christopher Baca posted on here, a really good discussion on the discussion of war. Check out the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. It became a thing no one wanted to take responsibility for. I'm also reading a great book on the war by Max Hastings, Vietnam, an epic tragedy. It gives some really great background on how the United States got involved and the dishonesty of the media, the politicians, etc., it really expands on some things I learned from Paris 1919, six months that changed the world. Yeah, I, I've i never seen the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. I've heard a lot about it, and I do plan to watch that sometime. So, like, all this information is very good. Um, yeah, definitely need to check these out. Yeah, I like you, I've not seen them myself, but I've always heard really good things. Uh, actually, from some of the authors who've been on the show have, have talked about that as being just a, a really like a watershed documentary that people should watch. So uh, it's been on my list for a long time and I really do need to get to that. So thanks for that. That's great. We did also get an email uh, from Russell 
And this was regarding the episode that we did on book two of the Deep Space Nine Millennium Trilogy, The War of the Prophets. Yes, and that would have been episode number 245. Perfect. Thank you for having that on hand, because I did not. (laughs) So Russell writes, Dear Dan and Bruce, have just finished listening to your discussion of the Millennium Trilogy in the episode on book two. You mentioned that the Gregari feature in the DS9 computer game, The Fallen, According to Memory Beta, The Fallen was adapted from the plot of the Millennium Trilogy and written by two writers, one of whom was David Mack. Hope you have a great Christmas. Best wishes, Russell. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, I had actually looked that up. Yeah, I've not played The Fallen. I have several friends who've played it and absolutely love it, though. So uh, it's kind of one of those video games that fell through the cracks for me. I never did get a chance to play it. But I did, yeah, recently learn that it was adapted from the Millennium Trilogy, so might be really cool to check out. Um, I don't think I'll play it myself, but if anyone out there in the Babel Conference wants to uh, mention to us if they've played it and what they thought of it, we'd love to hear from you. Or even if there's like some kind of link on YouTube or something that we can see somebody who had played it and we can just watch it from there, that would be great. There's a lot of video games... Uh, especially Star Trek too, that I really wish that I had played, but I just never have time to do video games like I want to. But this is definitely something now I really want to check out because there is a tie into Millennium and that's, those books are some of my favorites. Awesome. Well, yeah, we should, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to search YouTube for that. That's cool. That's a good idea. Well, thanks for the email, Russell. And thanks to everyone for commenting on the Babel conference. Uh, We really appreciate getting your comments and hearing from you. I really love doing this kind of feedback thing because it, you know, it makes this feel more like a conversation. So thanks so much for that. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't had a iTunes review in a while, people. Come on, give us one. We'd love to hear uh, some comments about the show on there, too. It would really help us out and help people find the show. So go to iTunes and give us a star rating and written review. We'd appreciate that, too. And we'll read that on the show. Uh, no matter what you say, no matter what you say, we will still read it. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded almost like a threat. I like it. (laughs) Well, what do you say we liberate Keith DeCandido from his corner and, uh, let him join us for this discussion about a time for war, a time for peace. Yes, let's do it. All right, Keith, come on over. Well, today on our feature, we're talking to author Keith DeCandido all about his novel, A Time for War, A Time for Peace, and of course, the entire A Time to series, because he had a bit of a hand in kind of the overall crafting of that. So without further ado, Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Awesome. Always glad to have you on the show. And uh, it's been quite a while. I just want to sing. After every time I hear the title of this book, I want to sing. A time for war, a time for peace. <laughs> funny, funny story. When when this was being pitched at the sales con in the sales meeting uh, at Simon and Schuster, um, somebody on the sales force was was worried that we that they'd have to get permission to use the titles because because it's a song by the birds and 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 John Ordover, the editor, had to gently point out that it was actually from the Bible and therefore kind of public. <laughs> yeah, on one of the recent episode posts uh, on my personal page, somebody said, oh, rip off titles. You ripped off the song from the birds. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> 
No. No, we both ripped off the Bible, just like everybody Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that I guess their only knowledge of of these titles comes from that song. So uh, you got to credit them for having a wide reach, I guess. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the series as a whole. So how did it come about and what was your role in kind of crafting uh, this nine book uh, tale? Well, it originally... Uh, was conceived by John Ornover, who was one of the edit- one of the fiction editors at Simon and Schuster in charge of the Star Trek line at the time. In fact, uh, it was one of his last projects before he left the company. Um, he hit on the idea uh, at this point. This was in two thousand two. So, so um, the idea, since Nemesis was pretty obviously going to be the last hurrah for the next gen crew. Um, he hit on the idea of doing. It was initially going to be a twelve book miniseries, which was the year leading up to Nemesis, more or less. Um, there, were, there were a bunch of changes in the status quo. Um, he first conceived this when the script first came in on Nemesis, and um, there were some changes made between the script and the final product. But the idea was it would show how, why Riker decided to take his own command, what led him to, to, excuse me, to finally agree to get married, uh, why was Worf back in Starfleet, um, why you know uh, a bunch of other things uh also in the original script uh crusher was supposed to be going off to head up starfleet medical so that was part of the that was part of the the conception of the storyline as well and um uh we 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 talked a lot and the initial meeting about the project uh included john and carol greenberg who uh was another one of the fiction editors at simon and schuster and um robert greenberger myself and john vornholt and we basically threw a bunch of ideas around and, and stuff we could do and, and things we could do to, to make things interesting. We particularly harped, uh, settled on the idea of the Enterprise being, having to work its way back from a disgrace. It's like, you know, the Enterprise has always been in Next Gen, has always been the flagship. It's, you know, the cream of the crop, the top of the heap, king of the hill, A number one, you know, all the Frank Sinatra references. So what, what, would, ha- what would happen if something happened that, that they were for whatever reason, disgraced, or at least, you know, knocked down a peg and, and having to work their way back up to, um, to being the flagship again. And we talked, you know, we talked about individual things, you know, what, uh, what would lead Riker to decide to finally take his own command, why he and Troy getting married. And I specifically said, I wanted the story about Worf going back into Starfleet. That was, I, I, kind of um taken on uh a lot of of wharf stories uh, ambassador wharf had sort of become my thing <laughs> and, uh, uh i did i did his first mission uh as an ambassador and i did a couple of other stories involving him so he was and wharf's always been one of my two favorite characters in the star trek universe it's uh, him and kira basically so i wanted to do that bob wanted to tackle um Riker and troy and John Bornholt wanted to do a story involving Wesley because uh, originally Wesley was supposed to have a bigger role in, uh, in well, first he didn't have any role in Nemesis, and then he was going to have a bigger role, and it was all very confusing. So we did that, and it went through a bunch of different permutations. Um, uh, originally, we were going to have uh, uh, Jerry Altian was going to be involved with it, Daffathab Hugh was going to be involved with it, and then they, they wound up dropping out. Um, they decided to cut it back from 12 books to nine books. Um, with the idea that I would do one big finale 
that would sort of wrap everything up. It would be a bunch of a bunch of duologies and then end it with one big book that would uh, wrap everything up and set up the movie specifically. Yeah, but didn't that bother you though? Because now you're only getting credit for one book and you're only getting paid for one book. Everybody else got paid for two. <laughs> um, actually, I was a little cranky about that initially, but um, the 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 make good on that. Um, was to uh, basically the same contract that included Time for Time for Peace was also for Articles of the Federation. There you go. Uh, mm. Since part of what I was doing was setting up that book, uh, was setting up the, the Federation president because we, we, when Dave Mack was brought in and he did A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, it ended with, um, once, once his story, we realized his story was going to end with the, with the Federation president resigning, we figured, okay, this is a perfect opportunity for me to finally do, because we've been talking about doing a Star Trek version of the West Wing for like three or four years at that point. Um, you know, it was something that, that John had said he wanted to do, and then we kept not doing it. I even did a little writing sample for it uh, to help sell it uh, to the publisher, which wound up being part of, that, that scene actually is in Articles of the Federation. Um, and so that, that, since I since I basically had a book taken away from me for all intents and purposes, uh, the the make the make good for that was to uh, to have me write articles, which came out the next year, uh, in which I helped set up you know, time for time for peace. So. Okay, and just so you know, we're actually going to do articles of the Federation in the next couple of months, so that's coming up. Woo! Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the other thing that um, that happened in the middle of all this was John left the company. Um, he uh, he moved on to to bigger and better things or well different things anyway and um so as a result of that uh ed schlesinger then took over from john but i was hired on a freelance basis to uh to work up because i'd been involved in the process in the beginning and ed was still kind of transitioning into the job uh and i've been doing some freelance editing for simon interester anyhow uh, there were a bunch of books that that i was hired to edit um both before and after that so because of that they just had me do the edits on uh, on Dayton and Kevin's book and and to edit uh, Bob's and Dave's two uh, duologies. And then Ed himself edited uh, edited mine. And my job was also to be continuity cop to make sure things were consistent from book to book. And, uh, it inclu- and in fact, somewhere, I may even still have the file, I have a master list of all the Enterprise crew we established, including every single engineer and security guard, of which there were a ridiculous number over the course of that, making sure that, every, you know, keeping track of who was still alive, who died. And so nice. I really appreciate that level of uh, detail. It really shows in these books because doing them so quickly and in rapid succession here, you kind of see those threads wind through. So that's really cool. It it helped that we all know and like each other and talk to each other a lot, in particular with the last five books. At the time, uh, me and Bob Greenberger and Dave Mack all had a regular lunch thing that we do that uh, Dave and I still do. Bob Bob has since moved uh, to a different state so he doesn't participate in that anymore but um uh and every wednesday we'd sort of sit in the corner with uh, of this group lunch and talk about what we were working on with the time two series and throwing ideas at each other and bouncing things back and forth and yeah we were emailing each other all the time um so in particular those five books had a lot of synergy because we were talking to each other while we were writing them um in fact, I was actually writing A Time for a Time for Peace at the same time that Dave was writing A Time to Heal. So, um, but we were in constant contact about it. Uh, and so it, it, you know, it was, it was not a hardship at all. It, that was part of the fun for all of us was, was to be able to, 
pick up those threads and, and you know, use the same characters. Um, one of my favorite things that we did, and, and this actually uh, wound up becoming a, a, a funny story several years later, Bob had named one of the security, one of the enterprise security guards that appeared in A Time for Love and A Time, for, Time to Hate uh, after somebody he worked with at DC Comics named uh, Edward Carmona. And Carmona's job was to guard uh, Captain Picard. He was he was Picard's bodyguard, and he went through a lot of crap in that in that duology. But he survived. One of one of those rare security guards who actually survives the story, and so so he went through all that and made it through to the end. And then Dave decided, in a in a fit of of um, uh, puckishness, to then have Carmona get killed while on a lunch break, <laughs> sitting in a building, <laughs> drinking, drinking coffee, eating a meal, and the building he's sitting in gets blown up. <laughs> so after all that, and the funny story is years later, we're at a party for Tor.com, which is a site I write for and which Dave has written for. And we're, a guy comes over and introduces himself and he said, hi, you killed me. <laughs> it was Edward Carmona, uh, the, the man himself. He'd been dying to meet um, Dave for years. <laughs> <laughs> because of what happened there and and we all got we all got a good laugh out of that but because uh, dave, dave hadn't realized that carmona was named after a real person it just never came oh, up okay oh Still. wow <laughs> um, he, ju he just did it just to you know mess with readers heads so um but and we did all sorts of stuff like that we we we, we tried to keep everything consistent um the the final scene in um in a time to hate uh with call Arsenal was specifically done in in conjunction with dave to establish that character um and and so on so excellent well getting into this novel a time for war a time for peace uh is which, which i think is the longest title of any book i've written hmm. which which is funny because my very next next generation book in three years later was q a which is the shortest title <laughs> of any book. perfect so you, it just, you kind of bookend all the other books i like yeah. it <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah yeah awesome well yeah well, getting into this novel uh, as soon as you see the the role that Worf plays and, and how much that plays into it, I could totally see why this was your book. Because we're actually also <laughs> in the middle of doing the IKS Gorkon series. So we did Im Diplomatic Implausibility and we've done the first two Gorkon books so far. Uh, so, you know, your voice for the Klingons, I almost think of you as like the Ronald D. Moore of the novel verse for Klingons. Cause like he has all the Klingon episodes and you have all the Klingon books. <laughs> Feels that way sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I'll take, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Ron did, did some amazing stuff. So. Absolutely meant as one for sure. Um, so yeah, Worf in this, in this novel, it's, I kind of think of it as die hard in the Federation embassy on Kronos because he's kind of going through this. That, that's what I was going for. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. I was expecting yeah. like a line, like, I don't know. Now I've got a disruptor ho, 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 or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I couldn't do that. Worf, there are two, no, there are two, no, bleh. there are no two more dissimilar characters than Worf and John McClane. I mean, Definitely. <laughs> in terms of personality at least they're both badasses but the, the similarities in there so yeah absolutely so yeah in this in this novel like i said he's uh preventing these extremists from carrying out their plan in the the klingon embassy and we kind of find out this whole subplot with Kalis, and it turns out that their contention that you know the federation has replaced him with a hologram isn't exactly true but he has been replaced with a hologram 
So I was kind of curious where the idea for this story came from. And uh, we also get kind of in the resolution to that story. And I should warn all the readers out there, we're jumping right into spoilers with this. We're we're not giving you any chance here. Um, <laughs> it's a 14-year-old book. I really don't think spoilers are an issue. But... Fair enough. Um, so I'm curious why this path for Emperor Kalis and, and kind of what brought that story about. That was... Um... It was part and parcel of what um, J.J. Hertzler and Jeffrey Lang did in The Left Hand of Destiny, what I was doing in the Gorkon books. The idea was that that the reasons why Worf felt the need to install Kalis as the Emperor in the first place under Gowron, the idea was that Martok was taking the Empire in a direction where he was no longer needed. Um, and it just it made for a fun intrigue story on top of that. And I liked the idea of of Kalis actually being the one to replace himself with a hologram just to see if anybody would notice. <laughs> um, and, and, and also just the thought that this poor guy, you know, basically was, was created and told he was Kalis and has all of Kalis's memories, but isn't actually Kalis. And after a certain point, he would want to try and figure out who he is really. And because we'd established Martok as, well, I mean, Deep Space Nine established Martok as, you know, the great, the great hope for the Klingon Empire, for somebody to bring it back to its glory days. Continuing that work that, that you know, from Worf's speech in Tacking Into the Wind when he installed him, when he, when he gave him the chancellorship in the first place, at that point, if Martok's doing his job right, then they don't really need Kalis anymore. And, you know, he doesn't need to provide that spiritual advisement that he that was desperately needed under Gowron. So that that was basically it. It was it was all part of the whole, you know, th- that whole plot line that um um that, that we've been doing in in various books, uh particularly in the Klingons in, in the Klingon series. Well and it led to that great line, today is a good day to paint, which <laughs> I did have to chuckle yes. at. That was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we also get uh, a story with Worf. And of course, by the end of this, he has to, you have to tick the boxes. He has to go back to Starfleet and be on the Enterprise and therefore give up his ambassadorship. And uh, I was curious what led you to bringing in Alexander and having him take the role of ambassador. That actually was a suggestion made by my girlfriend at the time, uh, who was uh, Terry Osborne, who uh, we've since broke up and, and she, she has written some Star Trek fiction uh, in her time. I, I was, cause I was struggling with that. I was trying to figure out, okay, who's the new ambassador going to be? Um, yeah. I, I thought about, you know, creating a character, but it was like, it was just going to be for half a second, you know, it wasn't really worth it. And Terry was the one who suggested Alexander. And as soon as she said it, I realized it was perfect. Yeah. He's a little young, but uh, the, he like Worf has, his feet in both worlds. So um, I think that makes him, you know, uniquely qualified to serve in that post in much the same way that, um, uh, that Worf was. Um, and that Curzon Dax was and that Kalar was. Um, it, it, they're all, all, all four now of the, the Federation ambassadors of the Klingon empire that we know about are all people who, um, understand both the Federation mentality and the Klingon mentality um, and therefore can, can speak to, to the needs of both. So I think that was, that was that. And I, so I thought that that worked out nicely. Um, 
Yeah, I'm surprised more people haven't used him. I think I think the Prometheus trilogy is the only other book that's actually used Alexander as as a Federation ambassador. But um, uh, and and I used him uh, in um, Singular Destiny, I think. But um, but aside from that, it was uh, or no, an article of the Federation rather than Singular Destiny. But um, so yeah, that was that was a case where I was uh, it, it was it was somebody else's suggestion and and it was it was brilliant and I thought it worked out perfectly. So when I love tying it into Kalar because I had totally forgotten that she was the ambassador as well. So yep. you know, kind of looking at this family legacy and honoring his father and mother in this role, I just there's something really poetic about that, and uh, also. Uh, Kim Tar, the future version of Alexander coming back in time. It makes sense. It fits really well with that as well. So it was very cool. I, I really appreciated that. So I have to say that in the Star Trek Litverse, one of my favorite Litverse characters is President Nan Baco. Thank you. Um, I, she's one of my favorites too. Oh my gosh, <laughs> she's so good. I, you know, and without yeah. giving out spoilers, I've enjoyed all the books that she's been in. And uh, so how'd you come up with the character and, and her personality and, and how she's depicted? What, was inf what influenced this character in your mind? Well, the, the starting point was uh, looking, I basically sat down and, and looked at all the Federation presidents that have been established both on screen and in tie-in fiction. And I was really appalled to discover that every single one of them was male. Hmm. Um, we, had, we had multiple alien species, but they were all dudes. Hmm. And um, th this struck me as wrong in the in in the supposedly egalitarian twenty third and twenty fourth centuries. So uh, my first thought was, what if I'm going to do a Federation president was going to be a female character? And as it happens, right uh, as I was working on this book, my uh, great grandmother died. Uh, my great grandmother was named uh, Grazia De Bacco, um, and I called her Nana, which is why she's, the character is called Nan Bacco. Um, my great-grandmother uh, came over to this country from Italy when she was a teenager uh, and uh, in the early part of the 20th century. She uh, came into Philadelphia, moved out to rural western Pennsylvania, and proceeded to have 10 kids. Uh, all 10 of those kids are among the nicest, sweetest, most genuinely good people I've ever known. Um, you know, lots of people... You know, with big families, there's family drama. Uh, at least among the ten of them, there is there's basically no family drama. Once you start getting into more generations, yeah, there's drama. But uh, the ten of them were all basically really good, sweet, wonderful people, and that's a testament to her. She, my great grandmother, became the matriarch of this huge family. Um, I, I joke that I'm related to half of Western Pennsylvania, but um, uh, through her. And so she was the primary inspiration. She, she died in 2003 at the age of 98. Uh, and that was right when I was working on this book. And uh, so I, I, she was partly inspired by my great-grandmother. Uh, and there are three other uh, people, two real, one fictional, who uh, also uh, kind of went into the mix uh, for Baco. Uh, two of them are women from Texas. Uh, a woman, uh, Molly Ivins, who is a journalist, and uh, Ann Richards, who was the governor of Texas. Um, uh, Ann Richards gave a particularly uh, good uh, uh, co uh, commencement speech, not commencement speech, but the keynote speech uh, at a Democratic National Convention in, uh, I believe, 1988. And uh, Molly Ivins is the journalist who first referred to George W. Bush as shrub during his time as Texas governor. And uh, both of them are very... Um, 
strong-willed, very snotty women <laughs> um, uh, with, with, who are very intelligent uh, and very funny. And the final piece of the puzzle is one that's fairly obvious to anybody who's, who's read any of the appearances of Nanbako, which is the character of uh, President Josiah Bartlett from the West Wing. Um, and to a lesser extent, uh, the, uh, the, the, for, the forerunner to Bartlett, which is uh, President Andrew Shepard from the movie The American President, uh, which was also an Aaron Sorkin script, which was kind of the first draft of the West Wing. And um, the, the, there's a lot of Bartlett in, in Baco as well. Um, it, it would, it, 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 I mean, it, it would, it would be impossible to say that there wasn't an influence there. The, the president Bartlett is the president we kind of all really want to have, <laughs> and probably will never get in real life. But um, so yeah, those those four uh, influences are all there, uh, and all kind of went into the mix for for writing her. I'm sure we'll talk about this probably a lot more, hopefully, if you're willing to come on for uh, Articles of the Federation as well. Oh, yeah. I'm always willing to talk about articles. That, uh, uh, it, 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 it's it's one, of, one of my proudest accomplishments is that novel. Awesome. Uh, well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, um, so yeah. I'm speaking for myself and probably a lot of other people. I, I would love to see West Wing in space as a regular thing. <laughs> and... Yeah. You know, the, the the whole idea of Federation government and politics of such a like spanning um, civilization is just really fascinating to me. So, you know, this whole idea. Of- it was it was a challenge. I mean, we can get into this more about the book where I was doing the government. In, in this book, I was mostly dealing with the election and I was trying I was trying really hard not to make either the election or later the government be carbon copies of the modern U.S. Um, and in particular, I. I figured if we're going to do something that's properly democratic, it should be there that, that voting would be easy, would be all done more or less at once. Um, and, uh, it would be strict based strictly based on numbers. I also very specifically, uh, avoided political parties. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, 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 in, in, in an ideal utopian society like the Federation, I don't see how parties would really survive. That's the sort of, um, uh, factionalism and cronyism that is an, the antithesis of what the Federation is supposed to be. I'm not sure if that would actually be workable in a real world context. We're not talking about a real world context. We're talking about the Star Trek, the Star Trek universe, which is idealized. Yes, but we need to be true to that in the time in, in when you're writing a Star Trek story. And I think that type of idealized society would not have political parties. You would simply have individuals running on particular platforms and everybody would be based, would be judged uh, based on their individual platforms. I mean, they'd still have to build consensus. They still have to work with other people. Um, but the idea of party lines just struck me as anathema to what, um, to what the Federation is supposed to be. Well, about. I would think it would so be would difficult to have party lines when you have, different species from different planets and they are coming from different well, cultures. There's that also, yeah. <laughs> It'd be pretty difficult to form all these different parties. So it would, and for that reason, it would make sense not to have parties. Also that. Yes. And by the way, your comment about past presidents all being male. I totally get that. And, and you're right. But these different species, how do we know that one of those presidents wasn't female? It's just in that species. They look male. Hmm. Well, the ones on screen were all played by guys. And, okay, uh, well, I'll give you that. Then. And 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 mo- honestly, most of the ones in the tie-in fiction were human. So 
That's true. The, certainly, I mean, all the ones, the, there were a couple that were, there were a couple 23rd century presidents that were established in games that were, that were human. Um, and uh, Kevin Ryan established one named Kenneth Westcott in the 23rd century. There's another one named Warren McLaren. You know, they're both human. Hmm. Um, <laughs> for that matter, Jonathan Archer supposedly was, was Federation president. True. Although that, that actually, um, that came out after I'd written both our, uh, Time for Time for Peace and Articles. So I wasn't able to incorporate Archer as, as a past president. Hmm. Uh, in either of those books, but um, and and there was uh, in one of the comic books, uh, uh, Thelian was very obviously drawn as male, although Andorian genders are a whole other thing. <laughs> but um, uh, so yeah, I mean it, it's possible that one of them was it's possible that Jarashinio from DS Nine was was female and he just was played by a deep voice, <laughs> very deep voice female. Never but know. who knows? Yeah. Never actually thought of that. Yeah, see, I, I come up with weird stuff. So, so it's obvious that like you did a lot of research with all the past presidents that you could find and that sort of thing. I'm curious mm-hmm. about Federation politics itself. How much of that did you glean from any kind of research, and how much of that did you just kind of have to make up uh, wholesale from I had book? To make up pretty much all of it. We saw almost nothing of it on screen. Which is funny, considering that, you know, you saw in depth the Klingon government, the Romulan government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government. Uh, we, we didn't see nothing. I mean, there was, we saw a president. On screen, we saw three different presidents. Um, and, and in each case, they were specifically dealing with a crisis. Um, you know, it was the, the, the probe in Star Trek IV, the... Um, dealing with uh Gorkhan's assassination in Star Trek Six and then um uh Martial Law on Earth in uh in Paradise Lost. But the we didn't really see the government in action and, and there were several occasions where we should have, particularly in Deep Space Nine during the Dominion War. Um we only saw Starfleet personnel. We never saw any members of the civilian government, which was a major failing on Deep Space Nine's part in my opinion. Um, and I and I don't say that lightly. Deep Space Nine is is my favorite of the of the TV shows, um, and and they did a lot. They did very very. They did a great deal right, but one thing they did not do right, in my opinion, was show at any point the civilian government, especially since we did see, um, you know, the Klingon government, not so much the Romulan government, but uh, you know, and and the Cardassian government for that matter. It was you know we 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 saw the prosecution of the war by. Wayun by the female changeling, by Damar, um, and by Martok and by Galron. Um, the Romulans not so much, but we didn't really. They were they were a, a lesser player from from the storytelling perspective. But all we saw from the Federation side was Admiral Ross and Cisco, and we should have seen, you know, much more involvement from the civilian government, and and we didn't. So I really didn't have anything to go on. I mean, I knew there was a council. Uh, because the Federation Council had been mentioned any number of times, uh, going back to the original series, and we knew there was a president uh, who, you know, was the leader of the Federation. That was it. So I had a pretty much a blank slate to draw on. So would you say that you formed a government for the F- Federation representing what you would like to see in a government today? Not necessarily. Um, it's one that I thought would work for that particular fictional construct. Hmm. Um. Uh, I think there's a lot of good in that, but it's also not one I think we could see in the world today, partly because um, we don't live in that world. Um, I, I was trying to come up with something, like I said, that would work for an interstellar empire that 
is incredibly idealized. Um, there are elements of it I think would be great. Certainly, I think the lack of political parties would be awesome because I think they've probably done more harm than good over the years. Um, but uh, hell, George Washington was against political parties. <laughs> but um, but no, I mean, I, I, I wasn't so much look, uh, going for something that I would like to see in modern times because, I, like I said, I don't, the Star Trek universe doesn't really apply to our own, <laughs> more's the pity. Well, one thing that this novel does that we've talked a little bit about is, of course, linking to Nemesis. That was kind of the point of this whole series. And this one in particular jumps right into the events of Nemesis. And one thing when I was surprised when I was reading it, I was surprised to see that parts of the story actually took place after Nemesis. And you deal with a little bit of the fallout of some of the events in that movie, for example, most notably the death of Data and kind of the right. impact it has on the characters. I was curious if that was a decision that you made uh, as the author, or was that kind of an editorial decision to kind of uh, link it that closely? There were a number of things that, that we were trying to do with this series. One was, was retroactively set up Nemesis, but the other was to set up the post-Nemesis fiction as well. Um, because the, uh, Simon, as, as we were proceeding with this miniseries, it was clear that... Um, uh, once, once it was clear, especially after Nemesis came out and royally tanked at the box office, it was clear that uh, there wasn't going to be any more TNG on film anytime soon. So TNG was given the same freedom that had already been given to Deep Space Nine and Voyager, which was to just continue the story forward unfettered. Um, and, uh, and because also uh, Nemesis had set up Riker on the Titan, so that was a new series that was going to be starting. So we um specifically the the mandate for this series was not only set up the movie but to set up the status quo following the movie and that mostly fell on my shoulders because i was doing the last book so um so that was part of what i was what i was doing there which is why i had the entire epilogue take place after nemesis was sort of get it in that direction and uh i also wanted to do some things that nemesis should have done and didn't uh including that that last scene uh among everybody right before Riker's wedding. Um, that sort of benediction scene, which was the last time they were all going to be together, which, which uh, the nemesis could have used a moment like that. Mm -hmm. um, could have used a lot of things, but um, um, it, but so, so yeah, it was, it was part of the point of this. And because mine was the last book, I wound up with a lot of that. Plus I had to wrap up a lot of things and tie everything together from the previous books. Um, and, and I also had to kind of move everybody forward. It was funny. There was, there was a, a comment that came in, in the early part of the process where um, the people at CBS, well, it was Paramount at the time, but were, were saying, can't we, I mean, looking at in particular Dave's two books uh, and saying, you know, do we really need the ninth book? <laughs> I mean, we, this is such a powerful story. Why can't we just end it here? And I had two objections to that. Uh, one was personal, which was, I really don't want to lose my, book here because they're going to pay me for it and I want to write it. But also more fundamentally than that, um, we needed to move past, we couldn't just go straight from a time to heal into Nemesis because in Nemesis, everybody was in a good mood. Mm -hmm. right. and, um, <laughs> so I, we kind of had to like get a little distance from the events of a time to kill and a time to heal before we jump into, you know, people having fun on the enterprise and having weddings in mountains and, and <laughs> 
And yeah, I'm glad you're saying that because that, that's why I liked about this book is because those previous books were pretty heavy and yeah, this kind of yeah. lightened the mood and tied yeah. right in then to Nemesis. Yes, it, it was necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and yeah, that was that was part of what I was going for there. Uh was was to to get them back into into a place where they could actually have fun again because God knows the time to kill and the time to heal were not fun. Um at least not fun for the crew. I mean, they were fun to read. Well, that kind of actually led into a bit of my next question, which was talking a bit about the post-nemesis continuity. So when this was being written, was it already kind of in place that you guys would be doing this kind of unfettered post-nemesis continuity? Or was that something that kind of happened after? A lot of it was still in the, it was still in the planning stages, but um, just as one example, I was, my original intention uh, with the, with uh, Crusher was to have her um, decide at the, because the movie cut out the the line about her going off to Starfleet Medical. Um, my plan was to have her decide to stay, and then uh, I get a call from Michael Jan Friedman saying, "Well, actually, I'm doing this book," <laughs> um, uh, which was the first I'd heard about Death in Winter. So. Because Mike was working on Death in Winter, we I changed that to basically set his book up. You know, he was he was already he was working on that, and uh, so that the object was to have Crusher actually go off to Starfleet Medical, which wound up I, I think that actually worked better anyway. I think that that was that that was a, a storyline that required its own book anyhow. Um, so you know, just sort of solidifying the the Crusher Picard relationship, um, since so, because we were no longer. Uh, tethered to to whatever they did on screen at that point, um, so that was one example. Um, the, you know, the Titan books were still being developed, but um, although I think I think uh, I think at that point uh, most of the Bible had been developed by the time I wrote my book, so um, I was I was working toward that a little bit as well, and um, and you know the, a lot of it was if not written yet at least in the planning stages, so. Uh, I was able to, to set things up to some degree. Already, so. so there's all this planning of tying into Nemesis and what we're going to do after Nemesis and all that. I'm curious, though, uh, J.M. Dillard did a novelization. Were any elements from the novelization worked into your plans? Um, I don't remember. I don't think I did work anything specifically from there, but I, I a, a lot of what I was trying to do was... Um, sort of ease the transition uh, between what we've been doing in the books and what we're going to be doing in the books and what was actually on screen. Gene Dillard was working with, you know, just the script itself. I had a lot of other factors I had to work in that, that she wasn't concerned with. And that's what I was more focused on doing, which was, which was working around uh, basically reconciling what we've been doing in the fiction with what was on screen in Nemesis and what we would be doing afterward. Um, in particular, working, you know, <laughs> figuring out what the heck to do uh, with Christine Vale, who'd become this major supporting character. And we wound up kicking over to Titan. Um, and, uh, you know, we're figuring out where she was. I, I had a, I also had to, you know, explain why Worf was serving as security chief. The guy was a Lieutenant commander and the chief operations officer in Deep Space Nine. What the heck was he doing back at tactical on the enterprise? That made no sense. Um, so I need to come up with a reason for that as well. So yeah, that was that was that was a big part of it. Was just uh, I I didn't really use anything specifically 
from the novelization. Although I did, yeah, I did. I did do the. There was there was a cut scene involving uh, Data's cat, but, <laughs> uh, which which I wound up putting in at Margaret Clark's request. I think. Um, uh because that was cut from the movie and and you know the idea that Worf wound up with with data's cat was was sort of amusing so yeah that was really cool um speaking just as as a reader and a fan of these books i have to say when Worf was named as an ambassador in deep space nine i was kind of skeptical i don't know Worf is an ambassador but your books really sold it to to me and i think if i had read these books at the time um I I would have been so disappointed to see him on the bridge in a Starfleet uniform in Nemesis because now that just seems like such a waste of the character. And I would love like a just a continuing series of Worf's exploits as ambassador. <laughs> what I came around to, because I, I was pissed in 2002, <laughs> especially because there was no explanation for it. And it just it 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 just annoyed me. Um but I, the more I thought about it, the more I remember. I, I remembered something rather important. Ambassadorial positions are not permanent, hmm. um, and conveniently, we had a change in president right there as part of the plot. Um, so, I that made it easier. And and the more I thought about it, as I was working through the plot of the novel, which is what you know what what Worf says in there is that you know, Worf, on screen everything we've seen Worf do has been for the greater good. Um, and Worf, I think, at this point, at that point in his life, really had earned the right to do something for himself for a change. And, um, you know, uh, being, I mean, he, even being a Starfleet officer was something he did, you know, as a tribute to his, the, the guy who rescued him at Kittimer, who raised him. Um, but even so, he, he deserved at that point to make a decision for himself rather than, you know, a tribute to somebody else or to, for the greater good of the Klingon empire, or the greater good of the Federation or the greater good of anybody. Uh, he, he more than earned it at that point. So, so I think it wound up working as a character beat. I mean, I had to work my way to it, but, um, and, and I do miss writing him as a, as a diplomat because that was fun. Mm. But, <laughs> I, I I really like how you worked him or bridged him from ambassador to what we saw in Nemesis on the bridge of the Enterprise because as I was reading the book and and he's in the embassy fighting I thought I I thought it was leading towards oh he's he's going to quit being an ambassador he wants to go back to Starfleet and the only way he can get back is maybe to fill position on the bridge of the Enterprise because Vale is security chief and she's going to Nemesis I mean I'm sorry to the Titan and then I I just loved how that worked out because you're right the timing of changing changing presidents means the same time that ambassadors change so the timing's mm -hmm. perfect and when he's leaving that role he's not going back to the enterprise to be a security chief he's going to the titan to be riker's first officer and i was like oh this is brilliant this totally makes sense for Worf. but then i thought but I know that doesn't happen and I know Vale gets there. So how does that end up happening? And of course that goes all the way to the epilogue, which takes place after nemesis. And it's like, okay, yeah, data's gone and data's supposed to be first officer on the enterprise. Now that position's open. So Worf's going to fill the enterprise and Vale, who was originally offered the role of first officer gets to move the Titan. I was like, brilliant. I love how that played <laughs> out. <laughs> uh, I also had a lot of fun with Riker offering the job to LaForge. Because mm, yes, 
I, I wanted, I liked the idea of him being offered it and turning it down because we almost never see that. And, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have Scotty in the book because I wanted to have Scotty have that conversation with LaForge. That was a great um, conversation, by the way. I was just like, ah, thank you. It was almost getting a little misty there with how Scotty <laughs> sees the world and sees the ships he yep. serves on. You know, this is your ship. You're the, there's a captain <laughs> on the bridge, sure, but I mean, it's your ship. Yep. That's brilliant. <laughs> and, and, and there was one bit in particular there, which I totally stole from Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore. They had actually used it for one of the Corps of Engineers books. Um, and, and I thought that was a perfect touchstone for, for Scotty's character, which was um, the fact that, yes, he was often put in charge of the ship, but that was, but he wasn't comfortable with it at all, that he didn't like it and didn't, and, and didn't, didn't want to be put in a position. And, and in particular, uh, I thought of A Taste of Armageddon, where, where Scotty was given the order to potentially wipe out an entire planet, which is a heavy thing to put on somebody, anybody, uh, even if they are command trained. And I could see him viewing that as, as a really good example of why he doesn't want to be put in charge of a ship. <laughs> um, you know, he's much happier down in the engine room fixing machines, which don't talk back and don't make him try to kill people. Um, and but also, you know, LaForge's career isn't he's not the same person as Scotty. He has different needs and different ambitions. And his big command experience back in the first season of Next Gen was Arsenal Freedom, which was a great moment, a crowning moment of awesome for the character. So, you know, it's not quite the same thing, but ultimately, again, as with Worf, uh it's about yes, a lot of times it's about duty, but sometimes it's also about doing what is best for yourself and especially when you're dealing with a situation where things like money don't enter into it because you're not considering well i'll get a bigger paycheck if i'm first officer when that's not a factor you can you know you can you can focus more on the soft factors of of what's better for you so yeah we can add uh, i was just thinking during that kind of rundown of how everybody ends up where they are you can add you know killing data and not letting him be first officer of the enterprises the li- on the list of sins of nemesis because oh man that was one thing. That- one, of, one of my favorite moments in the in the series, in the book series, was uh, in a time to heal when Riker realizes that by staying as first officer of the Enterprise, he has been blocking Data. Absolutely, because Data wouldn't. Data would anybody else would have just gone to another ship for a first officer position, but Data wouldn't do that because he's Data. But so, and because he has no ambition of his own. Riker by by staying there was was staying in Data's way, which I love that. I thought that was a that was a brilliant insight. Um, you know, and and as Riker, I mean Riker was way overdue for his own command anyway. That that was, uh, I mean they all they all should have been promoted long before then. It was it, it the, the TNG movies suffered from the same problem the TOS movies did, which is you know people in the same position that they were in you know ten years ago and two grade ranks ago, which is ridiculous. You know. Um, <laughs> I, I, my first contact, Riker should have had his own ship, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, especially um, since they all moved to a new ship. And my my yeah. personal headcanon, which is a term I hate, by the way, but, um, <laughs> you know, Riker was in command of the Enterprise D when it was lost. And I could name about five things he could have done on the bridge to prevent that from happening. So I always figured that Starfleet didn't offer him a command because, like, wow, dude, that should not have happened. So, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, his track record of, of commanding the Enterprise was not the best. Uh, but I, I, especially once you're, you're doing movies anyway, you're only doing movies every couple of years, there's no reason for everybody to be, still be serving on the same ship. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have established in First Contact that Riker, Troy, and LaForge run a different ship and that they also, like Worf from the Defiant, were rescued by the Enterprise. And then they all have their wacky time travel adventure together. You know, <laughs> um, th- th- there were there were ways to deal with that that would have been less, you know, for that matter, insurrection still could have worked if you had two to, you know, if Riker had his own ship, um, you know, he could have been the one in the briar patch. Uh, and then the enterprise was sent in after them, something there, there, there's all sorts of ways they could have, they could have made that work and have it actually be convincingly moved on in their, in their careers. Um, but they didn't do that. So, so I think uh, the lesson here is we need to get like the crop of novel writers to write the films. <laughs> <laughs> I think we get a much better product. I dare say that, that has been said. The thing is, we're not. I mean, some of us have screenwriting skills. Also, Kirsten Byer, Dave Mack, Peter David have all written uh, screenplays, but the 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 skills don't overlap in everybody. Um, I I I'm not a screenwriter. <laughs> um, that's that's not in my skill set uh and it's i just i mean i wouldn't mind pitching stories to filmed version of trek i know others have um i I never took advantage of of any of those opportunities but um it just it's um it's it's not something that i'm really good at (laughs) so i'm i'm more than happy for professional screenwriters to actually do the screenwriting um Okay, well, I want I want to put you on the spot, and this goes a little <laughs> off topic. <laughs> so, we, we're getting a new Picard series. If they yes. came to you and said, "What do you think we should do? What would you like to see in a Picard series?" <laughs> God, um, I have no idea. I I, given that you know we're talking fifteen years after the last time he was seen on screen, it would obviously you know I think it would be something with him fifteen years on, um. You know, uh, given given how long people live in the Star Trek universe, that might be his midlife crisis, whatever whatever his version of that would be. Um, trying to, you know, for whatever reason, maybe he's, you know, disillusioned with the life of a captain or is just ready to move on to do something different and can't figure out what it is. And then some crisis hits and he has to deal with it. I, you know, um, the, uh, Picard's a very complicated individual. What I probably would do is something that, and, and, and I did this for, for the first, the actual, the first professional Star Trek story I wrote, which was a comic book called Perchance to Dream uh, back in 1999, which, in which Picard had to deal with the fact that he has the makings of uh, dissociative dis- identity disorder. He's, he, he had um, uh, a Borg possess him, basically. Um, he had a senile, he did a mind, veld, mind meld with a senile Vulcan. Uh, and he lived somebody else's life for 35 subjective years. Um, so there's all these different things going on in, in, in his subconscious. And, you know, another possibility uh, for, for a Picard story would be those personalities starting to influence him, you know, mm-hmm. uh, making decisions that are more like something Sarek would do. Uh, yeah doing stuff more like Cayman would do or, or Locutus would do or any number of other things. Um, plus there's also the, the syndrome that was established in all good things. 
So maybe that would be starting to affect him and what that, what effect that has on, on his ability to continue to function. Um, so yeah, something like that, something that, you know, makes use of all the different traumas he's suffered, which have been considerable. Um, and, and the cumulative effect of that on him. So that's probably what I would want to do if, if I was told, Hey, what would you do for a Picard series? No idea if that's what they're going to do. Um, <laughs> but no, that sounds great. I mean, look at that. I put you on the spot and I, I mean, I'm sold on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'd watch that. <laughs> and it's the sort of thing that Patrick Stewart could probably sink his, his thespic teeth into. So, you know, Oh, definitely. Well, kind of one final little bit about this novel. Um, the theme of this really seems to be kind of the family moving on and, and moving on in general. So, you know, we have the Federation moving on from the corrupt Zeif regime. Uh, the Klingon Empire has moved on from the corruption of the past, and, and that's kind of moving forward. And we have the individuals aboard the Enterprise kind of moving into a new phase of their life. I was wondering if there were kind of real life experiences that you drew upon or things that kind of influenced that story, maybe specifically with the characters of the Enterprise crew moving on. Um, sort of, I guess. I don't know. I, um, the closest that might come to it in terms of my own personal experience was um, when I decided in 1998 to go freelance. Um, I, I'd been working as uh, an editor for a book packager uh, for uh, Byron Price. Um, I've been there for about five years and I, my writing career just started to happen. I'd, I'd, I'd already written, I'd already had, uh, I'd written a Spider-Man novel and a movie novelization. I was, uh, and at that point I had written, although they hadn't yet been published a couple of, uh, I don't know, hadn't I? Yeah. Young, I was under contract for a couple of young Hercules novels. And, um, you know, I had a bunch of different irons in the fire and I wanted to really devote myself to that and give it a chance. It was very risky. Um, I was lucky in that at the time I was married to somebody making a six figure salary. So I had a cushion and, and she was very supportive, but, um, and then of course we got divorced two years later. So that, you know, suddenly cushion gone, but, but, um, but it was something that I, I needed to do. Being, being a full-time writer was sort of my life goal from when I was a little kid. So I, I needed to try it. But um, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the thought processes that went into, into that, um, that decision-making that I was doing in early 1998 probably had some influence on, you know, things like, you know, what LaForge was deciding, what Vale was deciding, what Worf was deciding, what, uh, what Kalis was deciding for that matter. Um, uh, in terms of, of how to move on uh, to the next stage of your life. Um, that was some of it. Some of it was just uh, influenced just by what we'd seen on screen and how, you know, what, one of the things I love doing in, in writing tie-in fiction, and particularly I love writing in Star Trek, is looking at all the different threads and how they all tie together. Um, you know, how the different experiences shape what they become and all the different things they've done and how they, they tie to each other. One of my absolute favorite scenes that I've ever written was in that book, which was when um, uh, Captain Go, the leader of the inspection team is talking to data and mm, yeah. talking about how losing the emotion chip has affected him. And in particular, looking back at when he commanded uh, the, uh, the Sutherland, Sutherland. Yeah. Yeah. In, in redemption two and how he, cause one of the things that always bugged me about, next gen from because from the third season onward michael pillar basically decided the data had no emotions which hadn't been codified until then 
Um, and that always struck me as wrongheaded. Um, it, 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 it didn't make sense to me and it still doesn't. And data is perfectly capable of learning all sorts of things. Why can't he learn how to feel? It just, it, it never tracked with everything else he was doing. And that's, you know, that's how you learn is by experiencing him and, and first imitating and then taking it on as your own. And we see data do that. You know, at a lot of different times. The, Redemption 2 is the most obvious example where, where he basically impersonates Picard's stern voice when he, uh, when he yells at, at Hobson. And, you know, and for that matter, his friendship with LaForge, his, 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 the relationships he's had over the years, you know, all, all of that influences who he's become. And, you know, even if he didn't actually, you know, have an emotion chip, he still had the ability to show those feelings. So I, I, you know, that was a scene I really, I'd been wanting to write for a long time. So getting, having him actually articulate that was, was important, especially since we were, we were using the emotion chip as, as part of the, one of the storylines. So, yeah. And I feel like it really works too, when you get to future books about data, I think they kind of play off that some, so mm-hmm. I don't want to give too much, you know, spoilers and all that, <laughs> so, you know, but, uh, Speaking of characters, I, I have a, a complaint, but it's a fun complaint, and I have okay. a compliment. So I'll, I'll start with the compliment. First of all, thank you for working Pulaski in to attending the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was, I, it, it, it seemed only fair. <laughs> she should be. Me and Riker right? always got along well, so, you know, he invited her to the wedding. Right, she was part yeah. of the crew. And then, really, Wesley shows up naked. Like, I really do not need to visualize a naked Wesley. Okay, that was my way of... <sighs> I know where See, you're first going. Wesley was in the story, and then he was out of the story, and then it just kept going back and forth. And uh, he's at the wedding in uniform, and a re- and then there was a bit, there was a period there where uh, there was a part of the script where he was actually established as going off onto Titan. And we were very grateful when they cut it because that struck all of us as spectacularly stupid. Um, Wesley went off to become basically a higher being. The idea that he would suddenly come back and be in Starfleet again made no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that's like, you know, trying to live inside a box. Or it's like trying to put toothpaste back in the tube, um, which would be about as messy as that sounds. The it just it, That made no sense to any of us. And so we were very grateful when the scene was... Cut, but we still had that one little shot of him sitting at the table in a dress uniform. So I needed to come up with an excuse for him to be in the dress uniform. And it's like, well, there's going to be a beta Zoid wedding too. So maybe he got the locations mixed up. He's a traveler. <laughs> All this stuff is beneath him now anyway. So yeah. And I never picked up that he was in a lieutenant uniform in that scene. Because you point out no, that. No, it was. It, I think it was. It was a lieutenant's uniform. Yeah. yeah. There were two pips. Yeah. yeah, and I never picked up on that before until I read your book, and you were explaining why it was a the lieutenant. Joy is a freeze frame on your DVD. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is uh, we've been covering the Star Trek Prometheus novels uh, mm-hmm. recently, and we're actually doing the third and final one next week. The English translations, I, I should say. And I understand you had a little bit of a role in the English translations of those as well. A little bit. It was um, basically they, the, the novel was obviously written by uh, Christian and, and Bernd in German. Uh, it was then translated into English so it could be approved by CBS. And uh, in order for it, and since they already had that translation, it needed to be 
basically edited. It needed to be uh, massaged from translated German into English. Um, you know, getting rid of some odd idioms that had crept in that were translated literally. Um, in a lot of cases, fixing the character voices because you know when you're when you're writing in in a language that the characters don't actually speak, uh, character voices are are a lot more difficult to ape. But um, when you're actually you know when it's when it's rendered in the original language that the characters uh, speak in the source material, it has to be consistent with that. And in particular, the characters of Spock and Alexander and a few others as well. But those those are the two who are who are most in the book. Uh, I wanted to make sure their voices sounded right, that they, they sounded like Leonard Nimoy, that sounded like Mark Borden. And, um, and just in general, uh, there, were, there were a bunch of, you know, just, just smoothing out the text so that it read, it, so it read like it was a novel in English as opposed to a novel that had been run through Google Translate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I didn't edit heavily, because it's still Christian and Burns' book. It's their, their names on the cover. I, I wasn't going to try and turn this into a Keith DeCandido Star Trek novel. That wouldn't have been fair to them. Uh, so it was very much uh, trying to keep as light a touch as I could. I was just trying to smooth everything, smooth out the rough edges, basically. So that's all I was doing there. Well, I guess uh, I, I want to ask, and, and I remain hopeful, because you know, yours is a name that hasn't appeared in pocketbooks lately. We have gotten some great books from you, though. Uh, otherwise, um, The Klingon Art of War a few years ago, I thought was spectacular. And I was just Thank wondering, you. you know, with fingers crossed and bated breath and all that sort of stuff, if there's anything kind of on the horizon, Star Trek-wise, and if not, anything else on the horizon uh, otherwise that our listeners might be interested in checking out? The only thing I've got on the horizon Star Trek wise is to continue to write about it for uh, tour.com. I am, uh, I did uh, from 2011 to 2017, I did rewatches of various shows. I I rewatched next generation and then deep space nine and then the original series. Uh, Currently I'm reviewing uh, each episode of Star Trek discovery as it comes out. So that's that's my current thing is I've been reviewing Discovery and I've also been reviewing the the short tracks uh, shorts. Uh, in fact, uh, as we record this, uh, I'm I'm gearing up to to review the the Saru short, which will be debuting tomorrow as we record this. By the time this airs, it'll probably have come out. Um, and uh, so I'll be reviewing that as well. So that that's that's really the only track work I'm I'm doing at the moment. Uh, I would love for that to change, but. Uh, there's not there's not much chance of it happening anytime soon, if for no other reason than I'm too busy doing 800 other things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, uh, also for tour.com, I'm doing a weekly uh, a weekly feature called uh, Four Color to 35 Millimeter, the great superhero movie rewatch, where I'm rewatching every single movie, every single live action movie based on a comic book superhero. Um, so uh, throughout the month of December, I'm reviewing uh, the three. Uh, flashback X-Men film. So first class and then Days of Future Past and then Apocalypse. Uh, and in January, I'll be turning to phase phase two of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, starting with Iron Man 3. Um, you know, it's a new movie every week. Uh, other recent ones, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm going sort of vaguely chronological, but also in themed groups. So like the three X-Men movies are being done in a row, three weeks in a row. Um, and then I'm going to be doing the, the next set of MCU movies together. And then I'm going to do the, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies that came out in the 2010s and so on. So, uh, that, that's been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm going to be, this is going to keep me busy till at least August of next year. Um, and on the fiction side of things, 
I've got three new novels coming out in 2019. Uh, the first is an alien novel based on the movie series. Uh, it's called Alien Isolation, which is actually based on a 2014 video game of the same name, which focuses on the character of Amanda Ripley, who is Ellen Ripley's daughter. Uh, it was established in, um, in the extended uh, cut of uh, Aliens that Ripley had a daughter who was eight years old when she flew out on the Nostromo uh, for Alien and promised she'd be back in time for her 11th birthday. Uh, by the time she's actually rescued in Aliens, uh, her daughter has grown old, has grown old and died. Um, it's, it's, I was surprised that they cut that scene because it actually made her bonding with Newt that much more poignant. Uh, and it wasn't that long a scene, but they cut it. Uh, but it is in the extended cut and it's on pretty much all the home video cuts at this point. So um, Isolation, the video game, is about Amanda Ripley as a 25-year-old who uh, finds out that they found the Nostromo's flight recorder. And she and a Wayland yutani representative go out to a space station where it's being held. Problem is, it turns out the people who found the flight recorder also found a facehugger. And so by the time they get there, aliens have overrun the station, and you've got and you. Uh, the game is you playing Amanda Ripley fighting the aliens. Um, the novel is about two thirds a novelization of the video game, and about one third Ripley family backstory. So it's about Amanda Ripley's life. It's also about Ellen Ripley's life leading up to the first movie. Um, and how she wound up on the Nostromo and so on. Uh, but it takes place between Alien and Aliens. Uh, and it ties into a couple of other bits of tie-in fiction, uh, including one of Dark Horse's comic book series. Um, so uh, that was fun. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that coming out. I had a lot of fun with that book. Uh, I've also got two original novels coming out in 2019. The, uh, the next in my Precinct series, uh, it's the fifth novel in that series, which is Fantasy Police Procedurals. It's kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings. Uh, one reviewer called it Dungeons and Dragnet. And uh, <laughs> it's, it, it, it takes place in your basic D&D, Tolkien, Game of Thrones style medieval fantasy setting. It's got wizards and elves and dwarves and magic and stuff. But the main characters are cops who solve crimes. So uh, there have been four novels. I have written the fifth novel, which is called Mermaid Precinct. Uh, and that'll be out in 2019 as well. And... Uh, the third book that will be out is um, A Furnace Sealed, which is starting a new urban fantasy series, which is about a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx who hunts monsters. Uh, it's uh, Bram Gold is a courser who is a, basically a hunter of, of strange supernatural creatures for hire. So, and it takes place in, in the Bronx, which is the northernmost borough uh, of New York City. Uh, it, I, it's where I'm from, it's where I live, and it's also a borough that gets very little respect. Uh, usually when people write about New York City, they are writing about the island of Manhattan south of 125th Street. Uh, there's a whole lot more to the city than that, and, and my goal is to show it. So, so that's, that's where that's coming from. Uh, I've got a bunch of other things in the hopper of, of various sorts that I'm, are still in the planning stages, uh, including a gaming tie-in that I hope to be able to talk about soon, but I can't yet. Uh, but that's going to be pretty cool, too. So... Um, Got a bunch of short stories coming out. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff. So you are busy. That's a good thing. A little bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If uh, and on top of that, I'm also uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a martial artist. I'm a third degree black belt in karate, and I teach karate. I t I, I teach uh, to kids uh, a couple of after school programs here in New York, as well as a kids fighting class at the dojo where I train. So uh, that keeps me busy as well. A bunch of other things. So yeah, there's some stuff happening. Wow. Very cool. 
that's awesome. Well, where plus I do podcast interviews periodically. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, we really appreciate that too. <laughs> awesome. So, where can uh, people follow you online uh, if they want to keep track of what you're up to and and where they can get your stuff? <laughs> uh, if you go to decandido.net, which is my last name .net, uh, that's basically a link dump. It's 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 uh, it's got some ordering links for my most recent books and. Um, when when they exist, it'll have pre-order links for the three novels coming out in 2019. But um, uh, if you go there, that links to my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, my Instagram, my Wikipedia page. It links to my articles on Tor.com um, and all that. So um, if you go to decandido.net, that, that provides all the all the methods by which you can cyberstalk me. Well, well, I guess we'll have to do that then. But I'm afraid Absolutely. to cyberstalk you because then you know karate and that could be dangerous. <laughs> Definitely. Well... Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this book. We really appreciate it. Uh, this has been a really great series. I can't believe we're we're done it. And, uh, you know, to end it on this book. It was a lot of fun to you. work on, too. And I'm really glad people are still, I mean, it's been, like I said, it's been 14 years and uh, almost 15 now. And people are still talking about it, which is great because we had a lot of fun doing it. It wound up being uh, really important in the grand scheme of things. It, it pretty much set the tone for all the Trek fiction, all the, well, all the 24th century Trek fiction that came after it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it was sort of like the pilot movie for the, for the post nemesis fiction. <laughs> um, and, and I'm, I, I still think the books hold up. They're still, they're still being published. There's still, people are still buying them. People are still reading them, which is great. Um, it, it, it pleases me greatly. We had a lot of fun with it, all of us. And uh, it was a real labor of love uh, for everybody involved. And uh, the fact that people are still talking about it and still enjoying it a decade and a half later is incredibly gratifying. Well, I, I got to ask then, um, are you up to date with the current Star Trek fiction? Do you still read them as they come out? I haven't I haven't been keeping up, um, although I do. Uh, <laughs> I actually have to, I have to read um, the two most recent Discovery books because I'm on the um, I'm on the, the judging committee for the Scribe Awards, which is uh -huh. uh, the awards given out by the International Association of Media Italian Writers. And I'm on the committee for judging for best speculative original fiction this year because uh, I don't have any books out this year. So I can I can I'm, I don't have anything uh, under consideration so I can uh, I can judge. And uh, both both Dayton Ward's um, uh, and, and Jim Swallow's novels. Have been submitted for consideration, so I'm going to be reading them. Otherwise, I haven't kept up. This is as much to do with how busy I am as anything. I don't have that much time for leisure reading. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I didn't mention that I also do: uh, my wife and I jointly uh, run an editorial service called Creditorial, where uh, we edit uh, people's fiction. Or uh, you know, sometimes it's for publishers, sometimes it's it's for private clients. Uh, so that takes up a lot of my reading time as well. Um, plus, you know, research, a lot of the reading that I do is, is for research. So, or for judging the scribe boards. So pleasure reading isn't something I have nearly enough time for, which is a great frustration to me. But, uh, because of that, I, I just have not been able to keep up. There's a bunch of books I want to read. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, but I just, I haven't had the time. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, we get it. I mean, we do this show and we have to read books for this show and it's not for pleasure <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, no, they're, yeah, uh, it's all work. <laughs> it's all work. Hey, uh, the best thing is when what you do for work is also something you enjoy. It's one of the reasons why I made that decision back 20 years ago to become a freelance writer and 
despite some occasional financial issues, uh, well, more than occasional, uh, it's been worth it. You Smart know, decision. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm I'm doing what I love. I I I love writing. I love creating worlds. I love working in other people's worlds. I love writing about other people's. You know, uh, this is it's. I wouldn't have it any other way. So, uh, as different, you know, it's 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 hard to find that kind of fulfillment. It's it's <laughs> bringing us back to the original topic. That's what a lot of what a time for war, a time for peace was about. Was you know finding finding your own bliss in in your life, whether it's, you know, sitting on a planet painting landscapes while a hologram takes your place or, uh, whether you decide to, you know, stick, stay in the job you're in or try, try a new job or whether you decide to run for president of a 150 world federation. So, you know, that's, that's, it's the only life we got. You may as well enjoy it. So. I really love how this book really ties in the A Time Two series into Nemesis. And there were so many light parts and really great interactions among the Enterprise crew. And that was one thing I really loved about this book. I mean, the the politics and time things were really great, but you know, just that interaction with the crew characters and them teasing each other and they're at the wedding and oh and planning the wedding with Troy's mother getting involved. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's just fun stuff in there too. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of really great moments in this book and, you know, wrapping up the, a time to series as a whole, like it, it's kind of amazing. We've made it through these nine books and, you know, I'd read a couple of them before, but certainly never the entire series. And especially the fact that we're doing it now and the kind of ripples that it's created in the star Trek lit verse forward to the most recent Star Trek novels and the new ones that are coming out next year. It just kind of blows my mind that this all worked out as far as timing and, and doing this series when we did. I just, it's meant to be. There's the divine hand of the Star Trek gods, I guess Q, <laughs> directing our podcast where it no, needs I, to go. <laughs> I agree with you. And, and the IKS Gorkon books are playing well into what we're reading now. And there's callbacks to that in these. And then we might as well just say it now. I mean, the plan for 2019 is to start doing some of the post nemesis books. And uh, I know there's been a lot of requests for that. And there, or there's people that have been going and reading those now for the first time or rereading them. And so we want to hit those post nemesis books and get all the way at least through to destiny trilogy that destiny trilogy mm-hmm. is incredible so uh yeah it's really going to be interesting year and to be doing these when we know a new picard series is coming and how this is yeah. going to either fit in or not fit in with that <laughs> either way i'm kind of glad we're getting to them before that yeah. series hits the airwaves one way or the other, like a, it'll either really enhance that experience or B we'll be able to get through them without them being, I don't want to say overwritten, but you know, just kind of uh, being in conflict with Canon star Trek. So, you know, it's kind of cool that we'll get there before that happens. If that yeah, happens, I agree with so. you because it'd be nice to take it for what it is. And then when the Picard series comes, then we can see, We'll, we'll be able to say, oh, well, this fits in and this doesn't. And, you know, we'll already have that history behind us. Exactly. Uh, one thing I totally forgot to mention during the interview that I wanted to bring up, 
just the the close ties that all of Keith DeCandido's books have with one another. There's even the name drop of the children of Santara a couple yes. times in this novel. You know, yes. just like everything we're reading is linked together. It's really cool. Yeah. And had we not been reading those IKS Gorkon books right now, we would have missed that. That would have gone completely over my head. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's <laughs> so fresh right now with us. Definitely. Well, it's been fun talking about really fresh continuity references today, but it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the Trek FM network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Well, I have a question. Why is Worf late for duty? I didn't. Was that because of the particle? They weren't even there yet. It's because of puberty and, and, you know, how kids uh, uh, sleep you know, extra They long? sleep more be- during puberty. Yeah, I yeah. think that was the idea. Oh, Basically, okay. biological de- yeah, needs. They require more energy sort of thing. Okay. All right. I didn't yeah. understand that one part. I was like, what's going on? Okay. Thank you. Because I used to get yelled at all the time at that age, too. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, wake up. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Primitive culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. And how we treat our criminals is almost kind of a sign of what kind of society we are. And that's the kind of the sort of message of past tense is basically Cisco is saying that we, things have to get worse before they get better. But this mm. is a sign of what humanity used to be like. Standard orbit. <laughs> I feel really awful because, like, The Omega Glory is quite possibly my least favorite episode of Star Trek ever. And, I mean, Shades of Grey exists. (laughs) I really, really, really dislike it. And and the reason that I dislike it is because it's it's a lot of, like, the stuff that I associate with the worst excesses of Roddenberry. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. First, he says to uh, Giorgio, uh, my place is no longer here, in a very somber tone. But then the narration of him goes, I saw hope in the stars. It was stronger than fear. And I went toward it. And it's one of the greatest Star Trek lines of all times. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app. And that will get you all the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered there as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and in most third-party apps. And you can also stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to hear your thoughts. No, wait. 
We would love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. And the best place to join in on the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter, at TrekFM, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find us on our Goodreads group where where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek literary universe. Just go to goodreads.com, search for literary treks and click join group and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not off on some distant planet painting landscapes while a hologram sits across from me doing Literary Treks, where can we find you? Well, you can find me painting on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me doing Live from the Edge as part of the Edge feed, our discovery show here on Trek FM. And I do that with Brandy Jackala. And it's our live show when we do short treks or discovery episodes when they come out. And that's all on YouTube. And then you can listen to it as a podcast later. And then, of course, I'm on the Star Wars report talking about, of all things, Star Wars. And, of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. And, Dan, when you aren't talking to Scotty about whether you should be the first officer or just stay down there in engineering reading books, where can people find you? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can find me on youtube.com slash Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking mostly about Star Trek these days. And of course, I have a book review website at treklit.com where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And you can find me in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.